I should look at how I'm talking to you because probably I have a way of doing it that guarantees that you're going to say, what the fuck? Why should I even open my mouth? It has no point. I don't know. I'm just going to let the other person finish the rant and then we'll be done with it. <laughs> you're in distress. You're miserable. You're annoyed. You're upset. You feel trapped. You need to be sure you do something. Everybody contributes to the pie. Begin with you. This is The Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The Art of Charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. The show is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show but you want to know where to begin or find out more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm live programs in Los Angeles, you can go to the website and we'll email you a starter kit of all the top podcasts at the Art of Charm. We'll send you the fundamentals like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, business networking and negotiation, relationship management, public speaking and more. Pretty much all the stuff we'd wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. And we have our live programs running every week here in Los Angeles, California. Sold out about five months in advance, but We've got guys from all over the world every single week, which shows that no matter where you are, you can make it here if you want to learn and grow. Details on that at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Give us a call in the office or email me. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything, believe it or not. Test me. And uh, looking forward to meeting you here at AOC. Today we're talking with Esther Perel. She is kind of a legend. In fact, she was listed by the New York Times as the most important game changer on sexuality and relationships since Dr. Ruth. She's got a viral TED Talk that's been viewed 5.5 million times, probably even more than that now, and another one that she recently recorded. And she's the author of Mating in Captivity, which has been translated into 25 languages. If nothing else, she's fluent in nine languages, so we better listen to her about something here. We're going to talk about fatherhood, gender roles of men. This episode is an instant classic. There's so much in here, I don't even want to mess with it by pretending to tell you a summary here. So enjoy this one with Esther Perel. All right. Tell us what you do in, in one sentence, Esther. So I am a psychologist. I am a relationship expert. I am a couples therapist. And I basically help people navigate love, desire, and commitment in relationships, professional and personal. Got it. Good. How come relationships still remain so complicated? Why aren't they intuitive, like eating, sleeping, other human activity, since they're so basic to our human needs in general? It's actually a wonderful question, but it presumes that actually eating and sleeping are natural, when in fact, um, from the moment we became more in charge of how much we sleep, we're no longer just going to bed when the sun sets and waking up when it's time to go work the land. We have developed all kinds of bad habits 
around sleeping. We have insomnia. We sleep too much. We sleep too light. We don't have good REM stage. We sleep with light and with noise. Same with food. From the moment that we became in charge of feeding ourselves and having abundances of choices, we actually often find ourselves uh, feeding ourselves poorly and too much, too little, the wrong items. So relationships are more complicated today because they are actually much more in the purview of our own individual choices, commitments, uh, decisions about how satisfying they are. They are no longer just imposed on us. We don't have one school where we spend 12 years and one classroom with one teacher and you basically just do with what we have. We don't just get married and that's it. And whatever we got, that's the deck of cards we're going to have to deal with. And luckily, we die a lot younger, so if it's miserable, the misery won't last forever. Um, we have a whole new range of choices that um, and individual needs and expectations that we bring to all our relationships, be it at work, be it our intimate relationships, be it our friendships, that have made it probably a lot more complicated. So the human need to connect is wired in us. The human need for freedom is wired in us, but how all of this take place is endless plots, which has made for great novels and great movies. Right. So it's not necessarily intuitive anymore because we've complicated everything else in our lives and relationships are essentially no exception to that. Correct. Got Correct. it. Correct. Interesting. And I mean, you wrote a book called Mating in Captivity, which is really, it's, it's been translated into 25 languages. I heard you speak nine languages. Is that true or is that a typo? That's incredible. <laughs> no, it's actually true. And I work in seven of them, meaning that I do therapy, I lecture, and I teach in seven of them. The other two I keep for socializing. What languages? I, I, I'm French, German, Flemish, English. You're good. Keep uh, going. Uh, okay, what did I say? French, German, Flemish, English. That's four. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm, I mean... Maybe Spanish, Spanish, Portuguese, okay. Italian, Italian, okay. Hebrew and Yiddish. Okay, got it. Yeah, all right. I would have gotten there eventually. I probably would not have gotten Portuguese. Uh, Italian was next on the list, and then I figured maybe you spoke a little Hebrew. I might have forgotten about Yiddish, but no, I get it. Great. Uh, they wow. come in clusters. It's like once you get the Roman languages, they come in clusters. Once you get the Germanic languages, and then once you know that I'm from Flemish Belgium, you know that. I mean, that's already very good to know that I would probably be speaking Flemish. I was actually schooled in Flemish my entire childhood. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Because I th- I didn't know that you were from Flemish Belgium. I just knew, you know, French, German, Flemish in Belgium. And I know you're from Belgium. But ah, I, ge- I guessed well about done. pretty much everything well else. <laughs> yeah, good. Right on. Thank you. Well, anyway, that's it for the show. Now, um, I think, you know, that's incredible. So let me guess. You socialize in Yiddish. Or do you do therapy in Yiddish? You don't lecture in Yiddish. No, I don't have much opportunities. But I did for a while um, work in substance abuse many years back. And during those years, I actually did quite a bit of work with the Orthodox community, where I often actually worked in Yiddish. Generally, it was a language of the home. It's the language that I spoke with my parents. And here and there, I find another crazy soul like me who loves that language, who thinks it's one of the juiciest, most funny languages, and then we get going. Um, sometimes I go to Brooklyn, and here I am, you know, in my black outfits um, of downtown New York, and I enter those places, and I talk Yiddish, and 
somehow they actually know immediately that I'm from Antwerp. It kind of, you know, who else wow. would be looking one way and talking archaic? <laughs> that's so incredible. That Well, that's fascinating. I, I love it. And uh, New York Times wrote a story about you and said that you're the most important game changer on sexuality and relationships since Dr. Ruth. That's pretty cool um, because that's a big deal. And you've had a TED Talk that's been viewed 5.5 million times I mean, so that's that's good street cred right there. Street. I just did another one. Oh, excellent! And maybe I just did another one on the main stage two weeks ago um, in Vancouver on infidelity, and that should be posted um, in the coming days. So yes, two TED talks in two years, um, profile in the New York Times, and one coming up in the New Yorker. Um, it's been a good ride. Um, trying to figure out and trying to help people navigate these tumultuous waters of relationships and becoming better at it because you really hear too many people who often will tell you that they are wonderful in sports, wonderful at work, wonderful in their startups and lousy in their relationships. And a piece of it for me has been to actually open up relationship advice to men. And because women are often overserved and men are underserved when it comes to those aspects of their life. So I've actually begun to write a column for Inside Hook. I write a column for Fatherly. I do interviews for Fatherly. I'm sorry. And the idea is really to deliver, you know, like you basically, you know, life advice that is about friendships, that is about identity, that is about peers, that is about connecting that is about savoir vivre in general for men and the life of women won't change by the way until the life of men changes and that means broadening the definitions of masculinity that means debunking so many myths that men have to live by and freeing them the same way that we've spent 50 years doing it for women yes and welcome to the whole purpose of the existence behind the art of charm exactly well, that's why we are meant to meet <laughs> that's right that's right exactly and now you've, you've, a lot of people say this, but I feel like you were one of the first people to say this. The quality of your life depends on the quality of your relationships. And you just kind of touched on this because I'm paraphrasing you. The life of women won't improve until that of men does, especially when it comes to relationships. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think some people might even find that notion a little bit offensive, but reality often. Uh, and I think it's an important point because I think guys neglect themselves too, sometimes at the expense uh, or they 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 provide extra for their family, or they neglect themselves uh, at their own expense, of course, in order to to do what they think is best for their family. But actually, when you neglect yourself, you're doing a disservice to those that you love and live with. The sentence about the quality of your life depends on the quality of relationships is actually an idea that uh, I took from my work with Tony Robbins. And he probably says it differently, but I want to credit him for that. And, but it, it was so in line with my thinking, which is that, um, a certain kind of relational intelligence has gotten lost in a culture that has all the time favored tasks and performance, which actually is also what emphasizes male socialization generally. Men are much more socialized to be instrumental, to be problem solvers, to be task oriented and to measure themselves on their performance. I would say that over the last 50 years, 
women have gotten more options and more openings for different choices in life than what has been given to men. And so it's not just that they will sacrifice themselves, it's that they have less choices as well. Um, we are still basically dealing with when a guy isn't really providing, when a guy doesn't feel like he's making it, when a guy is not successful, when a guy is not killing it, when a guy has nothing to show for. This whole language is a language that you will never apply to women. He feels less of a man. And we know in nature, and it is true in culture, one is born a woman and one becomes a man. XX and XY. There is no culture where women have to prove that they are women, where they are taken to the woods to go and to show that they have finally become women. There is something about fertility that just is clear that a woman is a woman, whereas men have had to prove forever that they are men, that they are not women, that they are not whatever it is that they don't want to be, that is lesser than what the kind of men that they should aspire to. So they are constantly having to prove. And that proving is a tremendous source of stress. It's a tremendous source of self-doubt. It's a tremendous source of suicidality. I mean, it just goes all over the place. And I think that it's time to expand it. The major option, the one and only real shift that has happened for men in the West has been the invention of fatherhood. Men are spending three times more time with their children today than they did 50 years ago. And the, the role of fatherhood that isn't not, not just a disciplinarian and a provider and the guy who you wait to come home to kind of lay down the law, that whole new experience is the most important new role that has been given to men. But I think there's a few more that should be offered. Okay. And what do you think those are? I think that, for example, in some relationships, um, the woman is probably better at making the money and the man would be much better off if he felt okay doing whatever has to do with family life, with the economy of the home, with the children, with the buildings of the home, and that the division should be by competence and not by gender. Right. Except dot, 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 the male ego, right? <laughs> I mean, that's right. Except for, you know, a guy who has a couple where that actually takes place, half the time it's hidden. If, you know, we know that a third of women out earn men in America and it is hidden. We know that 50% of infertility is men and that is hidden. I mean, th there's all kinds of ways we hide the male ego and I'm not sure it really does a service. In same sex couples, people choose often by competence and by, by skill and by temperament, not just by gender. And I think straight couples are more and more, if they're going to go toward an egalitarian model, they need to be able to make this egalitarian too. There are men who are way better at raising children than women. And let's be clear on that once and for all and give them that opportunity then and not force them sometimes to do things that they're not necessarily as skilled at and then call them losers, by the way. Of oh, course, right. right? So, I mean, it, there's a price that hangs right there for you to pay the minute you're not making it according to society's expectations. That is very, very true. So we're kind of doing to men these days what we did to women in, in the 50s and 60s where it's like your place is in the home, you don't need a job, you have to be washing the dishes and raising the kids and cleaning the house. We're doing that to men right now where we say, you need to be earning a, a high income. You need to be providing for your family. You need to be uh, creating this material 
provision and you know your wife has options she can work or she can stay home and nobody will hate her for either correct at least when she has those choices i mean this is not for every class but when she has when there is enough middle class possibilities she has those options he always needed to do this they just that his message hasn't changed so when i say the quality of your life depends on your relationship is that in the end what he will be remembered for, what he will be loved for, what he will be eulogized for will have very little to do with the fact that he worked 75 hours a week. That's a good point. It will ultimately be because his kids really connected to him and they look up to him and they look up to him not because he was never there, but they look up to him because he actually was present or because he cared or because he showed up at the game or because he thought of them or because he knew how to talk with them or because he knew how to talk to take them out of their troubles. So in the end, it is his relationship record that will be how he will be valued, loved, admired, and remembered. He may be respected for his job, but he won't be loved for his job. That is a very good point. You're right. Unless, unless you're doing something visionary and world changing, you probably, your job probably won't even get mentioned at your funeral. Nobody's going to say he was the greatest quality assurance engineer that the world had ever seen. You, you don't hear that, right? You, you would hear he invented SpaceX and PayPal and Elon Musk is a visionary. You would hear that for a guy like that, but you will never hear that about, my dad is an automotive engineer. I, I don't plan on include, I mean, I hope he lasts a while, but that's not gonna take up too much real estate in the obituary section right. when that, Correct. God forbid, eventually happens. You know, It's all gonna be about his relationships with other people, and that's brilliant. I've never really thought about that, but you're right. It's always about your connection to others and your influence with others and the, and the differences that you make as a result of your presence, not the difference you make as a result of putting in 80-hour work weeks for right. 30 years. And even if it's work, Jordan, it will be there was an economic crisis, but he didn't want to lay off the people. He cared about his employees, so he made them all take a cut so that he wouldn't have to lay anybody else off. And it will, that too will be the relational dimension of his work life. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, you're right. That is ac absolutely true. And in order to, to create those types of relationships in our life and maintain them, well, what do we need to do? Because it seems like there's a lot of accountability there that we might not necessarily be used to. I mean, in the corporate world, laying off a thousand people, sometimes, you, you know, you'll, you'll get flack for it on the evening news, but a lot of times they say, well, you know, this needs to be done. And and I see that working its way through our personal lives as well. Well, you know, we were just different people, so we decided to, you know, separate. Mm -hmm. And and you hear things like that. And, and I'm not trying to judge people who, who have lasting or non-lasting relationships, but when it comes to your children and things like that, you, you have fewer options and you have more accountability. How do we hold ourselves accountable inside relationships like that? And And, and should we be doing that? I think that this is one of the essential questions of the day because um, we have brought the consumer attitude into relationships. And the consumer attitude is novelty, replacement, cutting your losses, um, getting a return on investment, not, not feeling like you're settling, you know, not taking a lesser good deal when you could have a better deal. And this whole attitude has pervaded, um, I would even say friendships sometimes too, but certainly intimate relationships and family life. So commitment still exists, 
but it means something very different. If you're a loser because you stay too long at work and you should be moving on to the next thing, Today, you know, if you stay five, 10 years somewhere, I mean, if, if that still even exists, there's something weird with you. What's the matter that you're not moving on and looking for the next thing and the better thing and the bigger thing? So everything about us these days is about leaving, right? You're unhappy, leave. Just don't cheat, leave. You're no longer connecting, leave. It's disposable, it's discarding, and that whole attitude has entered relationships. So accountability for me, sometimes I say to guys, I see, I see them in the office and, and the partner, let's say the, in this case, it's a woman and she's, she complains that she can't get a hold of him and that uh, he just doesn't really spend much attention on her. And then of course, so at night, he's quite interested in, in her being available for him and all of that. And, and I'm just thinking, Tell me how you treat your clients, not your workers, your clients. Do you return the text right away or the email right away more correctly? Generally, yes. Do you show your charming self? Generally, yes. Are you putting all, all the seductions in order to engage them? Generally, yes. Are you thanking them? Generally, yes. Are you apologizing if you're late or if you didn't respond in time? Or generally, yes, you kind of courteous. And now tell me, do you treat the people in your personal life according to the same criteria? Generally, no. Most of the people, if they actually treated the ones that are closest to them, the way they treat their clients, my job would be cut in half. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. (laughs) It's like, so you know what to do. It's not like I'm telling you what is accountability and they don't, and they look at me what they, I said, you are accountable, but you apply it where you think you have something to lose. You apply it where you think that there will be incentives and punishments if you don't follow suit. Whereas at home, there are no incentives. You think that no matter how you behave, you'll be taken the way you are and that's it. There's no consequences. So no consequences, no accountability. It's like, you know, do you pass the the red light when there is no cop? Or do you stop anyway because you kind of know that it's a good thing to do? I mean, if you're not watched, do you internalize values or do you only perform the values because somebody's looking over you? Yeah. And this is the bottom line, right? I mean, for any child who learns rules, at first you imitate, then you identify, and then you internalize. Are you just doing it because it's part of your role or are you actually doing it because it's a part of your identity? Ah, uh, Very interesting. And I want to deconstruct that a little bit as well. But it reminds me of, you know, when you're really settled into a relationship and you start to get into habits and then one day you're in a really good mood and you start to flirt with your girlfriend or your wife a little bit and she goes, what's gotten into you? You're being weird. That's when you know you haven't done that enough recently because she's wondering what happened? What, you know, who, who put scotch in your cereal where you're in (laughs) such a good mood and you're, you know being like you were 10 years ago, you know, when we first met. That's when you know you got to turn it up a couple of notches more regularly, right? And then one thing you want to say is, you know, what's your problem is what you often get or, you know, why are you so suspicious rather than, you know what, exactly what you just said, Jordan. The fact that you're noticing it makes me know that it's been a while and I owe you. I have been remiss. I have been too self-absorbed. Uh, I have not paid attention. 
I've been too busy justifying my absences rather than thanking you for your presence and take it as a cue. But typically, if somebody does someone new and the other person says, what's taken you, you know, you kind of answer with a kind of, well, if that's the answer I get, <laughs> it's yeah. like, you know, screw you. Exactly. Yeah. So you get a whole dance of suspicion, right? Instead yes. of a dance of accountability. The dance of accountability is, I'm glad something kicked in in me and I'm doing this because I should be doing this much more often. That's accountability. Are you being nice because you're in role? You know, are you being polite? Are you being accountable because you're in role, right? Because somebody's looking over you because the cop is at the corner, because the teacher is watching you, because your boss is watching you, because you could be losing your bonus, whatever. You know, basically you're identifying with a role. You know how to perform it. But the moment the spotlight goes or the watchdogs go, you kind of, you know, the minute nobody's looking at you, you go in the closet and you binge kind of thing, right? right? Or are you doing it because it's a part of your identity? Because it's actually not that you are identifying with the part, but that you have internalized the part. Ah. You can sometimes see that, you know, do you talk mean about your partner when you're with other people because you think that it's cool? You know, to say, oh, my husband, my wife, my girlfriend, you know, whatever. And, and you kind of, you think you can boast yourself by saying crap stuff about them. Or uh -huh. do you actually stay respectful about them when you talk to others? And every time someone talks about their partner with respect and admiration, people notice it. All right, guys, back to the show. You'll be sitting around and you'll be talking about, let's stick with cliches. You're watching some mm -hmm. football game or something, right? And one guy's like, yeah, my freaking wife, blah, blah, blah. My girlfriend this, my girlfriend that. And some guys, they jump on the bandwagon and they do the same thing. But other guys, and myself included, we kind of, I kind of get uncomfortable when that happens mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I don't actually, I thought about this. I never do that. I literally never do that. Uh, my girlfriend, her name is Jenny. Um, if I say something that she did, it's not like, can you believe it? It's usually just I... something silly or funny. And it, even if it's mildly embarrassing, it's not just me trying to embarrass her to make myself look good or look like a victim or something like that. Usually it's just for the sake of humor. And usually she gives me a playful slug on the shoulder and that's the end. Of, that Those are the consequences, right? That's it. But I see this in relationships where guys do this all the time. I get email from female fans and listeners that say that same similar things about their husbands. And I can't help but think, wow, if you're telling me this and we've never met, what do you, you know, what do you act like in person or how does this sort of manifest itself inside your relationship? Cause you can't really say a bunch of negative things about one person and then just forget about it. The instant that person shows up, your brain can't do it. Even if you think you can, right? No, no, it's totally. I mean, to me, the sentences that, that in this context that I often pay attention to is when people said, she would never let me. He will uh, yeah. never let me. What is this let business? You know, you had a childhood. You're done. You had a parents. Now you're an adult. And this let thing is a victimization script, right? And now it becomes, you know, the other person is the one that's uncomfortable with it and you have to manage them. And it's actually a rather discarding, disqualifying set of speeches. And then 
generally when these people go home, they can be nice. They will be contained if you want, but they're not in a quality of relationships. I mean, it's very, very telling when you see people, they talk about their partner, what they do, they do, or who they are, and they describe it with fondness, with admiration, with love. And you know, they've internalized the other person as a positive energy inside of them. And it's very particular. You know it, you hear it. But I'll tell you more. I have two boys and I have actually often asked them that if they hear this kind of stuff in college about other girls, that they not just sit in silence, but that they actually, you know, I, I don't need them to talk like me and come out with a speech. They can just say, <laughs> dude, that's not cool. That's fine. But just something that says, you know, dude, don't do this. You know, you don't, she's a human being kind of thing. And to, to actually not be a bystander, but to be an upstander. I think that's really important. And I think we should listen and take things away from that because it's really easy to listen to your friends complain about their relationships. It's really easy to listen to people say things that are sort of sexist and generalist. But here's the thing, and, and this is the big secret that took me years to learn. A lot of the people that say those things, they don't really mean them at all. They're saying them to get approval from other folks. And by saying nothing, they think they've gotten that approval. But if you Correct. often say, well, you know, I don't know. Do you really believe that about your wife? She seems really sweet. That might be the last time you hear that from them. And that might be a good thing, not only for your own just sort of general surrounding in your fr friendship relationship with that person, but for his relationship with his wife. Because you can complain all he wants about his wife, but he's going to bring some of that stuff home, whether he means it or not. And that's a problem. And I will add another piece. I think you're right on the mark. And I would say more. I would go and say, look, the way you tell the story, language shapes the experience. You want to complain, then you will look for things to complain about. You look for things to complain about, you create a confirmation bias. Yes. Confirmation bias is that you look only for evidence that reinforces your point of view and you disregard, you know, evidence that actually would challenge it. And then you can be in a relationship in which, you know, a colleague of mine says they are the masters and the disasters. <laughs> you mm -hmm. do the complaining bit, you are among the disasters. You complain, you criticize or you are contemptuous, or you are indifferent, and you have the four major pieces that will really uh, kill your relationship. You turn it around, and instead of complaining and thinking that it elevates you to complain about your partner, you actually talk about you know, the multiple things that you appreciate in your partner, and you actually create a different relationship. The way you tell the story is the way that you will shape your experience of your relationship. Ah, that's very interesting. And I'm a firm believer that your your languaging will shape the experience. I think that's great. It's like where you insist persists. Exactly. Yeah. And it, this isn't woo-woo. It's not like, oh, your language manifests something. It's literally just the words have associations in your brain. And when you have that association in your brain, uh, then and you keep reinforcing it with the stuff that you're talking about, it starts to become, again, you get that confirmation bias. And just to give an example of confirmation bias for people who maybe hadn't heard that before, or it went over their head, or they weren't paying attention. Confirmation bias is when you look for evidence that something you already believe is true. And I'll give an example that uh, that someone I know, whenever people walk under a streetlight and it goes off, uh, this person that I know that I'm thinking of right now, she thinks, 
oh, what, you know, I turn streetlights off when I go underneath them. So she thinks this is sort of some sort of like metaphysical power or something that she has, and she thinks, you know, maybe she thinks the dead relative, I don't know. But the truth is she doesn't notice the other, you know, 5,000 streetlights that she's driven under in the past 12 months that didn't turn off. She only notices the ones that do, and thus she thinks that there's this magnetic field or something like that. And this is a ridiculous example, but people do this in everyday behavior. And you were saying, I can't do it is a confirmation bias? I can't do it is a confirmation bias. And then every time, you know, the confirmation bias is basically, it's also, you know, he can't do it. You know, she's so lousy at this. You know, ah, what, what do you, you know, she never talks. He never says anything. You know, he, it's these sentences which basically put your mind onto something. So now you have created a way to define reality around you. And now you're going to look for evidence that reinforces that reality. But the most interesting thing is that when we do that, we also tend to not see the other stuff. Like when couples are in distress or people, but I will say it for couples because that's really where I've studied it the most. We know that couples that are in distress will typically do the following. If we arrive on time, it's because there was no traffic. But if we came late, it's because you're such a klutz. And you're always late and you never know the directions and all of that. So you begin to do attribution theory. You assign blame for what doesn't work and you basically assign chance for what's good. God forbid you would assign the good to the other person. That's that true. Would be, that would totally, you know, d- d- destroy, destroy the construction. So, and you begin to notice 90% of the negative and typically couples will fail to see 60% of the positive that is still there. Ah, because they're focused only on the negative. They're focused on the negative. Right. That's part of the confirmation bias too. So it works in multiple, in multiple ways. I can't do it as a confirmation bias in, in the simple sense that, you know, the first thing I think when something comes in front of me is, ah, I can't do it. Well, I've put energy there. It's like physical energy, not just mental energy. It's bodily energy. I, I put, and now I am tense and my shoulders are up and I'm in a state of contraction. I'm in mental contraction and physical contraction. And of course, I will be more afraid and more with the sense that I can't do it. Yeah, that of course makes sense. And I think everybody can spot one of those or or several of those in their lives right now, even if you're aware of it. But of course, then getting the awareness around this is a great way to start to break the confirmation bias you know, of that phenomenon in general. Now, offline, we were talking a little bit before about acting from your better self, and you sort of hinted at this when we kind of gave the example of whenever she says, oh, what got into you lately, you know, because you're acting from your better self. I'd love to hear more about what you mean by that and, and how we can do more of that. I think that particularly in intimate relationships, I've been a couples therapist for 30 years here in New York, all over the world. And I am always struck by how much this one unit People think it will survive sometimes like a cactus. Like you just leave it in the desert. You don't water it too often. And because it started out of love, 
And because it had all this promise, because you chose that person out of everybody else and vice versa, and you were special and we are the one and unique and indispensable and irreplaceable because of this whole romantic ideal that's attached to it. After that, you have to do nothing. It kind of lives on its own. And then people, more often than they should, one day wake up, turn around, and there's very little left. It's been so long since they actually had an in-depth conversation, since they really stopped and just looked at each other and took each other in with their eyes like a baby takes in a mother with their eyes. It's been so long since they just laughed. It's been so long since they said, thank you. Thank you for being in my life. Just like that, not because of what you did and not because you took the car to the garage, just for being in my life. Basic things that which they do tell their friends, which certainly they tell their colleagues or their clients or their, you know, in many other places, but not to their partner. And I always wondered why is that relationship that is often meant to be so central deprive of that better self. That better self is that self that doesn't take it for granted. That better self is the one that every once in a while sits down and writes a card or a letter and just says, you know, either I'm sorry for something or thank you for something, or this is so meaningful. You know, in we are creatures of meaning and we want to feel that we matter. And sometimes in our relationships, we start to feel like we've become a function and a role more than that we really matter for who we are, that we would be missed, that the other person starts the day and they take us inside of them with them, and that we leave and we carry them inside of us, those kinds of things. The better self is that more attentive, appreciative, thankful, meaningful person who values their relationship actively, not just on Valentine and not just on the anniversary, whatever the anniversary is about, you know, but out of the blue, wakes up with that and just says, this is not a given. This is not a given that the other one is here or that I'm still here. Um, this is a challenge to make this thing last and to make it become something really thriving. It's the difference for me between couples or relationships that are not dead and relationships that are alive. You can survive, you know, that not being dead is not so difficult. You survive. Right. Yeah, you gasp, the default. You survive, you lump along. Thriving is a different story. Thriving is a different story, absolutely. And, and how do we start to rekindle? Maybe we've failed at this, right? Maybe we haven't acted from our better self. Maybe we haven't been very mindful, which is a cliche word, I know. Um, maybe we haven't been very attentive. How do we start to rekindle the desire? Like maybe we look at our partner and we go, we want to be attentive, we want to get things going, but man, it's just, it's been 25 years, you know, it's, it, we just, it's not necessarily still there or it, it doesn't feel as, as easy. It, it's a challenge. You know, half the people at 25 years are no longer together. You know, we're done. We have a divorce rate of 50%. This is after marriage. So I'm not even talking not marriage, but we basically are divorcing at 50% in first marriages and 65% in second marriages. So we don't have a, a long staying power. And certainly we no longer, you know, marry till death do us apart. We marry till love dies. So one day you get up and you look at yourself and you say, how am I doing? Not how is my partner doing? That's the first shift. People are masters at assessing 
their partners. <laughs> they can give you a full critique, you know, and a full evaluation form. Do your own. How am I doing as a partner, as a father, as a boyfriend, as a lover? How am I doing? When's the last time I actually said, I'm going to shape up or clean up or pay attention or learn something new? I mean, I can tell you, I work with loads of guys who, as a sexologist and a woman who works on, on sexuality and relationship, I often will find men who have probably not learned something new about sexuality in relationship to their partner, I will say, oh, since they were teenagers, right? Uh, years. So I say to them, if you were to buy a house, you would be reading up all kinds of websites about buying houses and markets and returns and investments and location and God knows what. If you were to buy a car, you'd be doing a lot of research. So tell me something. When's the last time you actually said, I'm going to go read something that will make me a better lover? And of course, there's most of the time, I don't need the answer. I know the answer. And right. I'm just saying, why? It's the same. You know, father... Son, even. I mean, in all your relationships, you know, when's the last time I went to the person and I said, I haven't shown up and I know that and I don't have a good excuse. I can come up with all kinds of explanations, but I know that I have not really been present and I appreciate that you're being so patient with me. Yeah. That's a nice one. Uh, what's the last time that you went to your parents and you just said, you know, I've been I've not been there enough. I've been as absorbed or, or I have not told you how much I'm, you matter to me. And I don't want to have to tell it to you on your deathbed. <laughs> <laughs> the last time people showed up at a friend and just said, let me take you. Let me take you out. You've gone, you're going through a rough time. Let me just take care of you for a day. Put yourself in my hands. Stuff like that. And here is the most important thing about all of that. I have yet to know somebody who at the end of doing this feels worse. You feel elevated. You feel, I did something good. I did the right thing. I did something that fills me up by filling someone else up. It's the most powerful antidepressant. It's the thing that gives you a sense of self-worth. It gives you a sense of decency, it, dignity. It elevates you in whichever form you do it. You know, the day that you went to your girlfriend and you said, you take the day. I'm going to take care of everything today. Just go. Take a day off. Yeah, most people haven't done that in a million years. Well, people feel so thankful. They feel seen. They feel important. They feel that they matter, that they feel that someone saw them and just said, let me take care of you. And we live in a society where we have to take care of ourselves a lot. The burdens of selfhood have never been heavier. We have to deal with everything ourselves. So when somebody comes along and says, take a break, let me do for you, it's, it just melts our heart. All right, back to the show. Yeah, it's something that we're so not used to and that we are so unsure of. It's almost like the vulnerability of doing that scares a lot of people away as well, I think. Yes, 
sometimes, but I sometimes I give it as assignments to people because I frankly think it's way more effective than an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety for that matter. It steps outside of yourself. We know that people who do for others feel better, period. So I give it as an assignment. And then it's like going to the gym. Have you ever known somebody who went to the gym and regretted it? No. No. So it's the same in this. Have you ever known somebody who did something for someone else without waiting for something in return? I'm not talking about those other transactions. And then felt bad about it. It's just you feel like watching a person who struggles on the street and taking their bags and say, let me help you. It's those pieces that have a little bit disappeared and that actually put back the focus on relationships. For a long time, when we lived in collective and in community, we lacked emphasis on the self. We were very much beholden to others. We lived with a lot of duty and obligation and church and structures and all of that. And we really wanted to do away with all these authoritarian systems. That was great. But now we have gone into a super emphasis on the self and on me, me, me. And we need a little rebalancing, a little recalibration where we are not the most important thing, but our relationships are the most important thing in which we are a part of. And when that starts to happen, people actually feel a lot less deprived, envious, unhappy, uh, you name it. Yeah, no, this is brilliant. I love this. It's, uh, it's very clear that you are the real deal when it comes to this. I really love this. One thing that I'd be remiss in not asking a uh, a therapist how to get out of some of the relational distress. I mean, you you and I had mentioned this in offline as well, and you know, repairing things when your relationship goes south. Because a lot of people who listen to this are in relationships that maybe aren't go. I mean, just by sheer value of numbers, there have to be thousands of people listening to this where their relationship is having some serious problems right now. I know that's a really broad question because it depends on the problem. Actually, I will tell you this. It doesn't depend on the problem. It doesn't. Oh, that's interesting. One of the very important things in couples, because I, I don't know that I would always say it's the same in all relationships here. It's different in friendships and in, and in intimate relationships. But in, in couples, here is a real important piece of truth. The form is a lot more important than the content. When people, when a couple is in distress, it doesn't matter if they're fighting over the garbage or the kids or the in-laws or money or sex, it all sounds the same. In the end, every fight sounds exactly the same. And what it can be is a put down, a disrespect, a lack of ability to hear, a disqualifier, you name it. This is why people come in and they tell you we fight over ridiculous stuff. And I say, yes, because the stuff is never what matters. What matters is what you're doing to each other through the stuff. And basically, when people are in distress, what they're doing in those arguments is they end up feeling that the other person doesn't care about them. And so since you don't care about me, I'm going to care about me. And I'm going to repeat to you five times the same thing, each time louder, each time stronger. And since you never are going to validate what I just said, I'm just going to repeat the same thing. And of course, I'm not going to validate you either since you're not doing it for me. And each one waits for the other person to do it first. Après vous, maybe when you will have hurt me, then I can finally stop yelling and telling you the same thing over and over again. And maybe now I can start you know, listen to you. So the way out of 
the essence of relational distress to me is to take responsibility, is to stop looking at what the other person is doing to you and be trapped in what is often called in my jargon, hostile dependence. Hostile means I'm angry at you. I'm angry at you because you make me feel miserable and I am pissed, but I depend upon you to change because only when you change, I will feel better. So I depend on you. You're not doing it. So I'm more hostile and angry because you're leaving me in my misery, but it makes me even more dependent on you. And it's this go around, go around. Right. And in a couple, I make the other. So the more I do what I do, the more you're going to end up doing what you do. This is like one on one couple transaction. But people don't think like that. They say the other one is this way. They don't see that what they do draws from the other the very behavior that they don't want. Meaning, if I am upset because you just sit there like a log and you don't move and you don't say anything and you just stonewall me, I should look at how I'm talking to you because probably I have a way of doing it that guarantees that you're going to say, what the fuck? Why should I even open my mouth? It is no point. I, you know, I'm just going to let the other person finish the rant and then we'll be done with it. <laughs> we make the other. And so I cannot tell you the thousands of times I've had to say this and to say you, you're in distress, you're miserable, you're annoyed, you're upset, you feel trapped. Begin with you. And start by saying, I know what I do. You need to be sure you do something. Everybody contributes to the pie. So you start with what you do. And you don't qualify. I do this because you. You just say, I know what I do. And then you begin to develop autonomy. Now you have unhooked yourself from the, I need you to change so that I can change. That's the beginning step. Excellent. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's tough, though. Easier said than done, right, to take that accountability, to take that responsibility. Because I think what a lot of people, well, one, there's ego in the way, but two, people are afraid if they take responsibility, somebody else is going to pounce on them for it. Which sometimes happens. That's why you are sometimes in the presence of a therapist who when the other one, you know, when you finally say, I'm sorry, instead of saying, that's what I wanted to hear, I say, no, that you're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. You better be sorry. And then I step in and I say, excuse me, you have been wanting your partner to tell you they're sorry. And when they tell you they're sorry, your effort now is to actually receive it and be able to welcome it and not try to convince them that they don't mean it because it makes you too vulnerable to actually finally have someone say, I know I hurt you. Yeah, no, you're right. It, oh man, that would be a struggle to accept that after that, all that time because you're, one, you're not necessarily expecting it and two... It seems so long overdue if you've been the victim that whole time or playing the role of the That's victim. right. And so you have gotten used to being in the standoff mode. Your brain is in fight, flight, freeze. And now that the thing finally comes, you kind of say, I don't trust it or too little, too late. And then you never have the repair. So the repair is your ability to actually do a little bit of a leap of faith and say it's hard to trust because I've asked for this for so long and it didn't come. But now that it's coming, it is what I wanted and I'm going to try to receive it. And that's where the repair takes place. Oh, excellent. You know, you have some exercises that I'd love to get out to people before we wrap here. And, and one is sort of in a similar vein. You said there's a lot of people, I'm sure, that whom we owe an apology. You, you suggest to call or write them. Can you tell us about that exercise? Yes, and I would go even beyond apology. I think sometimes 
one of the nice things is you walk up, you know, they left there on a trip. I mean, I work with a lot of guys who, who do business travel. And I always ask them, you know, what's your conversations like when you're calling home? And it's a kind of a checklist sometimes, right? What's going on at home or sometimes what's going on with the kids or did you do this or did you do that? And I just thought, don't do that phone call, for example. And instead, drop a note. And the note is, I'm sitting in my hotel room and I'm thinking about us and I'm thinking about our life and I'm thinking about the fact that I'm actually on this trip and how much I've traveled this year, and you've been really cool about this. Or I know this isn't easy for you that I'm always on the road like that. And I actually can be in meetings and not spend two seconds worrying about home, worrying about the kids, because I know that everything is taken care of because you're there. And I just wanted to thank you. I just wanted to tell you how much that means to me. That's a different note when you're on a business trip. Huh. I'm sitting in my room, I realize, you know, I love it when I come home or I'm sitting in my room and I actually realize the freedom that I have to be able to be in this hotel room by myself and how long it's been for you to be able to be somewhere alone where nobody is going to interrupt you and c come down crawling on you and all of that. It's something I take for granted, how much I appreciate having time to myself and how little of it you have. Thank you. Stuff like that. It's not just, I'm sorry, because I did something, you know, like in the AA version. Um, yeah. It's really more a kind of taking stock and going meta, putting yourself on the balcony of your life and looking from above and then basically saying, these people allow me to have the life I have. Thank you. And that's a ballsy move. If you can pull that off, it's because, again, vulnerability, because you have to be ready to open up to that person and... The chances of, I guess, rejection there formally are pretty low, especially if it's somebody close to you in your life. But when you do this, you'll be amazed at how good you feel, and you'll be yes. even more amazed at how good they feel. And if you come from far, then you may say, I know this note may not come to you. You may wonder why I'm doing this. You may wonder why now. You may wonder, what, you know, if there's a, an idea behind it. You may wonder if yeah. there's something I want from you. I totally would understand why, because it's been a long time and we have closed off to each other. So there is no reason. The only reason is I listened to this podcast between Jordan and Esther. Right. And, you know, I thought, it's been a long time. And, and I thought, I really need to do that. And maybe you won't accept the first one. And then I need to write another one soon. Because I realized that at this point, you've closed off because we've really not been there for each other in that way. So yes, there is a vulnerability. And you need to understand the other person may not come so quick. And you may say, but they don't do it either. And that may be the case. And then you would say, you know, I don't expect you to do this for me in return. This was just something I wanted to do for you. And yes, I think that it would do us both good if we did more of that. We are very good at telling each other when we miss things and when we don't do things. And we haven't been as good at telling each other when we do things or simply what we mean to each other. These kind of things will bring couples back from the brink. Interesting. Yeah, I can see that because it's so overdue. It, it starts to build up resentment when it's not done over time. First, it's resentment because you still wait for it. And then it turns into coldness and indifference. You don't even expect it anymore. Yeah, like nothing I do is going to get this, so why bother? Yeah. Do your own thing. 
then one day just you meet somebody else and that's that and then it's over <laughs> it's like you know what's to save kind of thing but when people do it they realize that in, they've been longing for it actually it's not that they've become cold and closed just because there was nothing to drink from but they long for it and yes there is an element of already by the way nothing not man-like about it or nothing not woman-like about it. I think this is totally gender neutral. I think this is about humanity. I think this is kids to parents, parents to kids, uh, friends to each other. There's no hierarchy to this. It's a very strange thing. It's like, you know, I used to tell my boys, I said, the person who apologizes is always the one who has the power. Really? You know, they thought, hey, why should I apologize? Yeah, exactly. you know, I didn't do anything. And I always said, the one who says, I'm sorry first, has the power. Because I have rarely, by the way, in a couple, seen somebody say, I'm sorry, and the other one say, uh, yeah, you should be. Generally, if somebody says, I'm sorry, the other one says, it's okay. I'm sorry, too. And it's over. Yeah. Yeah. It's but that ego, man. It's there. You know. It's lurking. But if it's, you should apologize. <laughs> you know, you owe me an apology, lady or mister. You know, you can wait for a long time. And feel entitled and deprived and oh, so sorry about yourself and miserable. Yeah, yeah. And then that can fester and create problems later on down the line. Oh, not even later on. Oh, not even later on. This is like creating problem. It is creating pollution on the spot. Wow. This kind of, and you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's the entitlement of the deprived. You know, you owe me and poor me. And, and that, the whole, oh God, it, it just, it has no limit. So all I can tell you for everybody, I don't know if it's more difficult, by the way, for men than women. I think some women have a hard time doing that too, because, because, you know, we really, there's something very soothing to us in thinking that the other person is the one who hurt us. And, you know, we only did this because of what they did. That's not true. If you're hungry, I'm not immediately hungry. And if you're cold, I'm not instantly cold. And if you're tired, that doesn't make me tired. <laughs> I have my own regulation system. If you're mean, then I make him, then I should be immediately mean. Why? <laughs> Maybe I decide what I want to be. Excellent. Yeah. I don't create you, but I create my reaction to you. I don't create you, but I, d I do create my reaction to you. Perfect. I love it. it. Thank you so much for your time. This has been brilliant. We're going to link to your website in the show notes as well. And we're going to link to this bonus that you have, this 10 questions about your sexuality that you never asked yourself. We didn't get a lot into sexuality. We can do that another time. Uh, I would love to have you back. Uh, but definitely we'll link to that as well and to estherperel.com as well. So I really appreciate it. I'll do a whole one with you on sexuality. I and I'd love to, to debunk a whole bunch of myth about men and sex and women and sex and all of it. So happy to come back. Yeah, I look forward to that. And maybe we can do it in person. I think that would be really fun too. Mm, even better. Thanks so much okay. for your time. Take You're care. You're welcome. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Like I said, instant classic, was I lying? No. How to hold yourself accountable in relationships, acting from your better self, getting rid of that relational distress, rekindling desire. There's a lot here. More than I need to list. You Just go ahead and re-listen to this because you know you want to. Show feedback and guest suggestions. The show's a fanarchy. It's run by you. I was introduced to Esther from somebody else just like you who thought, Hey, maybe I should reach out and say something. I rely on that. I need to keep my finger on the pulse. You guys are surfing the web all day, just admit it. And so if you know someone is a good fit for the show, 
let me know. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Esther on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Live program, live training details for The Art of Charm at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Also on the website, we've got some bonus episodes that are not released in the iTunes feed for those of you who just can't get enough Art of Charm. Subscribe in iTunes, check out our new network, Podcast One, and we have our iPhone and Android apps available as well. If you find yourself behind a firewall or you're having trouble streaming the show, you can go into iTunes or wherever you get your Android apps and check out The Art of Charm. And you can help us by reviewing us in iTunes. Review us, write something nice, and uh, that will help us a bunch because not only does it make us feel proud, but it helps keep us up in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily and get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than grabbing some products or training from us. Special thanks to the Jasons for their help in production of the Art of Charm podcast. Please tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 